Hello and welcome to Sports in the Waiting Room. I am your host, Chris Russo. A happy belated Independence Day to you if you are American, whether living in the United States or not. Sincerely, a congratulatory message to you. I hope you enjoy the festivities. Big fireworks this week coming from the NBA free agent market, but also on the trading block. So we're going to go over the deals that I think were more significant, at least. Can't go over all of them, but the first one I'd say, maybe the biggest one, the Hawks acquiring DeJounte Murray, as well as Jock Landau, for Danilo Gallinari, a 2023 protected first-round pick, a 2025 first, a 2026 pick swap, and a 2027 first to to the San Antonio Spurs. Now, I I don't know if this is a championship move necessarily because, again, the Hawks Hawks were, what, eighth, I think, last year in the East and took a a pretty significant step back. You know, they've got a lot, they had a lot of guys who were free agents. They they gave nearly a max to John Collins. They, uh, you know, they've lost some guys, but this is a significant move in that the Hawks have put, the, the, I think the Hawks rely on Trey Young as, as much as a lot of teams, more than a lot, most teams probably do on one player. When, when they rely on Young for scoring, facilitating, and the like. But, you know, with Murray coming in, Murray, more of a natural point guard, Young, a better shooter. Murray, who was, you know, maybe the biggest trade target for anyone this offseason or this summer. He's going to play alongside Trey Young, and presumably they'll turn him into more of a shooting guard. But those are two guys who can who can both play the point, who can have a significant impact on the game, and will turn the Hawks somehow into an even more dynamic offensive juggernaut. Meanwhile, for the Spurs to get Gallinari, who is really an outside shooter, a guy who does you know does not move much, but still a quality player, a good veteran player, should make a difference for this Spurs team. But ultimately, they, you know, they're, they're smart enough that they try to create a future here. They get a lot of picks. Again, a protected first rounder next year, a first in 2025, a 2026 pick swap, and a first in 2027. So it will take some time to really see the results of this trade but the Spurs are obviously a smart enough organization that they can try to recreate some of the magic they had in that Duncan, well, Robinson first, but the Robinson, Duncan, Parker, Ginobili, and then later Kawhi Leonard, that whole era. And it could be a fresh start for them at the draft where they can get multiple, multiple impact players at one level. So this is spread out over the next four or five years. But and we don't, you know, we don't know how long Greg Popovich will coach, but it does set up a bright future for the Spurs. However, it is smart for the Hawks that they a good deal for the Hawks in that one they got Murray, and two they were able to spread it out over the course of a few years. They were able to spread out that return over the course of a few years, and not not really mortgage their immediate future necessarily. 
So that that was a, a big move and not a terrible not terrible for either side. The Spurs got a good return and the Hawks got a true point guard who will provide a lot of assistance to Trey Young. Uh, speaking of point guards, Jalen Brunson signs a four-year, $104 million deal with the New York Knicks. I honestly thought $26 million was a lot. I've, I've, I've said it time and time again that you know players are getting paid outrageous sums of money, especially when you consider you know so, some of what being an athlete is compared to you know, like being a doctor or a you know a Fortune 500 CEO or something like that. But it is as as much as I love sports, it's just you know unbelievable. But Jalen Brunson is this is a a large signing, but it's ultimately a signing that the, signing that the Knicks needed to make, where they'd really they'd kind of have Julius Randle playing the point or bringing up the ball at least for quite a time. And then the whole Kemba Walker experiment, although it looked like, although it seemed, you know, for a couple of games like it might work, and it seemed like it would be, you know, a great match. He, he's from New York. He went to UConn. He was a great player in Charlotte. Maybe the great, maybe the best player in the history of the Hornets, or at least the new Hornets organization. But it ultimately didn't work out. And the fact is the Knicks have not had a point guard the likes of Jalen Brunson, I would probably say since, at, or at least to perform that well with the Knicks, probably since at least when Chauncey Billups was in New York, I, I think he I think he actually went, was he in the Carmelo Anthony? I can't remember, but around the time of Carmelo Anthony, so about 10 years ago. It's, it's, it's at least been 10 years since the Knicks have had a point guard that strong. And that dominant can really change a game. The fact that the Mavericks actually—I I think it speaks more to the to how much the Suns kind of choked that series when they clearly should have won. But the fact that the Mavericks made a run to the conference final this year and not, is also a testament to Brunson. It's not it was not just necessarily just on the back of Luka Doncic, but you know Dallas had a, a, a perhaps a more complete team. But this is an interesting signing, and of course his father is an assistant coach for the team. So, you know, it had had been hired as an assistant coach already, so we kind of saw this coming, but a significant deal. I remember Jalen Brunson at Villanova. I, I'm trying to remember if I ever called any of his games, but of course when I was at Seton Hall, at Seton Hall and Villanova in the Big East together, they have a, a huge rivalry, and Jalen Brunson came out of Villanova as one of the better players to come out of that school, uh, a school that is, you know, a great program, but sometimes, but, you know, a lot of times their best players uh, the, on their championship teams aren't necessarily big in the NBA. Exceptions are probably, you know, Josh Hart, Brunson, and then we'll talk a little bit about you know, Dante G- DiVincenzo. is kind of more of a role player. But that's that's what he's that's what he's continued to be in the NBA. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But you know, guys like Ryan Archdiakono or Chris Jenkins, you know, guys like that, there who might have been the top guys on a couple of those teams didn't really make as much of an impact in in the league. Whereas you go further back to a guy like Kyle Lowry, who was great but never played on a championship team. 
you know, Jalen Brunson is the guy who can merge that and is really one at the college level and can make a difference in the NBA, was a transformational point guard for Dallas. And so I stand corrected, actually, that Jalen Brunson, I never called a game for Jalen Brunson, but I did work, I was at WSOU at Seton Hall, and he, and he I don't think he graduated, or at least did not graduate on, uh, while, uh, at least did not graduate before going into the draft, but his third and final season with Villanova was my sophomore year at Seton Hall, so I did get to see him uh, a bit, and he was a fine, uh, fine player at Villanova, and we'll see how it works out with the Knicks. He's also kind of a local guy. He was, I did not realize, born in New Brunswick, which is, I mean, it, it kind of, truth is New Brunswick is kind of borderline almost between New York and Philly, but pretty significant signing. So uh, again, though, local guys, Kemba Walker didn't work out. Let's see how this works. Meanwhile, in a fascinating move, Rudy Gobert is traded to the Minnesota Timberwolves. I assumed automatically that Carl Anthony Towns would be let go or, or traded or something to that extent. However, he has agreed to a four-year extension. So Carl uh, Anthony Towns, a guy who, who has gone through so much, another guy who's actually local by, well, local to me. He's from New Jersey, from North Jersey, and a guy who's you know lost so many family members to COVID. It's been a very difficult last couple of years. Lost his, his mother, most notably. And then a guy who you know has been the face of the Timberwolves for pretty much his whole career, then he has to go watch Andrew Wiggins go play somewhere else, go play in Golden State, and finally this year, truly play to his full potential, be dominant, be a, a, an excellent defender, and I would say at least in Game 5 of that series, a prime scorer, have a really truly significant impact for a Warrior team that relied much on him to win a championship. And so I would think that puts the pressure on Towns Sometimes, you know, there are guys like LeBron James or Kevin Durant who, you know, who leave their first team. And not to say that Carl Anthony Towns is necessarily on that level, but you see some guys and they'll leave their first team to go play in perhaps a bigger market where they'll get more help. But, you know, sometimes there are guys who play in a smaller market and, it's different. It's it, it. It was so significant for Kevin Durant to be the finisher for that Golden State team, or you know for LeBron James Miami. But the some guys, it's different. But you have a different kind of respect for guys who stay in that smaller market and try to win a championship there. Try try to win it, maybe not necessarily on their own, trying to get some help. And Towns will get that with Gobert. But it's been a, quite an interesting two years. It's quite a difficult two years for Carl Anthony Towns. So for him to, to want to stay in Minnesota for four more years, even with Rudy Gobert coming in, that's, I think, something very significant for him. And it's a good sign to the people of Minnesota and you know the people of the Twin Cities area, even going into... Uh, Wisconsin a little bit. So I'm not quite sure how it's going to work. I guess they're going to have sort of a Twin Towers thing. I mean, Carl Anthony Towns kind of plays 
more as like he's more kind of like Kevin Garnett actually or Tim Duncan where he yeah he can play the five he can play center but he can also play power forward pretty well kind of just a much bigger power forward so but uh, trying to go underneath against those two guys is going to be very very difficult it, this is kind of similar to the the Murray Young dynamic from now on, except, you know, those two guys are going to be playing in the, uh, those two guys are going to be the, a guard tandem, these guys are going to be playing down low, but two fairly similar players who can who can play in multiple positions, but will be even more frightening together. So keep an eye out for the Minnesota Timberwolves, especially with Anthony Edwards and uh, a guy who is really starting to emerge. Uh, Goran Dragic signs a one-year deal with the Chicago Bulls. Andre Drummond signs a two-year deal. That's a couple of significant guys they bring in, and that's even with Zach Levine deciding to return. So the Bulls making a splash in free agency. Obviously, the, these guys, you know, Dragic deciding to leave Miami. Drummond, probably a little past his prime now, but you know, two guys that are big difference makers, perhaps off the bench for Chicago. Shorter-term deals. And a Bulls team that surprised a lot of people last year in making a run to the playoffs. I will say, you know, if I mean if Alex Caruso is healthy, this is a Bulls team that could win a playoff series or two. You never know. Cleveland, team that kind of fell off despite being near the, the top of the pack in the Eastern Conference for much of the year. Cleveland Cavaliers signed Robin Lopez to a one-year deal. That's rather significant because... He is a, a guy who's hungry for a championship. He's seen his brother win a title. He's a great player. And he's been around the league a number of times. He's very experienced. Cleveland is not the most... Cleveland does not have the most experienced roster. They have a fine roster, but not the most in terms of playoff experience. So when they, they ink Darius Garland to uh, this huge deal, and now they bring in Lopez for a one-year deal, I think that's rather significant. Mavericks do lose Jalen Brunson, but they sign another guy who's got some veteran experience, a guy who's won titles before in JaVale McGee. They sign him, rather surprisingly to me, to a three-year deal to try to get some more inside traction. The Denver Nuggets bring in DeAndre Jordan, but they also bring in another former Brooklyn Net in Bruce Brown to a two-year deal. You might remember, actually, I think it was earlier in the year that the Nets played the Knicks. I think it was a nationally televised game and just made a huge comeback late at the Garden. I don't even remember if it was it was either Kyrie Irving or Kevin Durant. I think one or the other, maybe both, honestly, did not play in that game. But Bruce Brown, uh, Bruce Brown was a very underrated part of the Nets team. And I had said this about the Nets with... You know, Irving and Durant and then Harden and now Simmons and all of that. They lost, they gave up a lot of really good guys that were more core to that organization than you realize in getting such huge, huge stars. They lost guys like Karis LeVert, like Jarrett Allen, who's made an impact in Cleveland. You know, like a, a number of guys, I would say... Yeah, I mean, Bruce Brown is one of them. Bruce Brown is rather significant. That's a big loss. 
but it's a good gain for Denver. And, you know, on top of that, you know, we don't know when Murray's going to return. I mean, watching Bruce Brown probably come off the bench, I would guess. He's he's good insurance policy, if not. So, you know, a, a Denver team that rather faltered this year. The Detroit Pistons, this may not seem like that significant a deal. And it may seem like, you know, they're just signing, you know, quote-unquote scraps from the Knicks, some people might say. But they signed Kevin Knox to a two-year deal. Kevin Knox, I thought, was rather underused with the Knicks. And, you know, not a bad defensive player. He is a guy who should probably play more off the bench, but he's not a third-team guy. I'd say he's, I'd say he's a second-team guy. And if you position him in the corner, give him a little time. But if you position him in the corner, he will knock down a lot of threes. He is a much better, I think he's a rather undervalued ball player who could make an impact for the Pistons this year. Golden State Warriors go out and get Dante DiVincenzo. Two-year deal. DiVincenzo, of course, was with Milwaukee, was significant for that title run, and, you know, he's a good role player. Another guy to add to Golden State, which is, you know, rather significant since they lost both Gary Payton, the second, on a two-year deal to the Portland Trailblazers, who re-upped Nurkic. It seems they're going to hold on to Damian Lillard, so, you know, maybe they'll do something there. And the Toronto Raptors went out and got Otto Porter Jr. to a two-year deal. It's a guy who was a star at Georgetown, played well with his hometown, or with you know for college with his hometown Wizards, and was significant off the bench for Golden State. Two guys that were big off the bench for the Warriors during their championship run last year. He is signed to a two-year deal with the Raptors, so maybe the Raptors can make some waves in the Eastern Conference and in that division again. But DiVincenzo is a good signing for Golden State. I said it it's kind of like how in hockey the Tampa Bay Lightning you know lost guys like uh, third and fourth line guys like Blake Coleman, Yanni Gord, number of players they went out and then they went out and got you know Nick Paul and a, a few others a few other guys who made quite the di- they they Corey Perry guy they retooled their bench they held on to their core and they retooled you know, the lower-level guys. So that's what Golden State is doing. The Milwaukee Bucks, despite losing DiVincenzo, do sign Joe Ingles to a one-year deal, a guy who is quite a who had quite a spark in Utah. He is you know, supposed to be a good teammate and a rather strong player. That's a good signing for them. The New Orleans Pelicans. There had been rumors that Zion Williamson would be traded, and I can tell you, especially knowing locally, there was a big rumor that he would or traded or would sign somewhere else. I kept hearing rumors about him going to the Knicks, was one in particular. He agrees to a five-year extension with the Pelicans. If they had Zion Williamson this year, and apparently he thought he was able to play for the playoffs, but they opted to keep him out, they might have actually won their series against the Phoenix Suns, considering they pushed it to six, even you know simply on the back of Brandon Ingram. But it's a New Orleans roster that is starting to grow a little more. And, you know, they had... They had really underperformed, I think, early on in the year and into last year, but if they could push Phoenix that far, a Phoenix team that is still dangerous in spite of that Game 7 against Dallas, it is a New Orleans team that might have a future. And then the Port, the Philadelphia 76ers signed P.J. Tucker to a three-year deal. 
lure him away from the Miami Heat, who knocked out the Sixers in six games in the Eastern Conference semifinals last year. P.J. Tucker, of course, is 36 years old, but still a strong defender, great veteran experience. And last year, he had 7.6 points per game. That was his highest since 2016, since the 15-16 season with the Suns. He averages over a steal per game for his career, nearly a steal per game last season, and averages nearly six rebounds a game. Won a title in 2021 with Milwaukee, and again, knocked out the Sixers. So to lure him away from Miami is another big, big thing, and just to keep him in the conference. Moving on to the NHL, there were actually a few significant moves there already. First off, the Minnesota Wild trade Kevin Fiala to the Los Angeles Kings in exchange for a first-round pick and a prospect. Fiala finished with 85 points this year. That is honestly much higher than I thought he actually had, considering how much of the load that that Kaprizov, Zuccarello, Hartman line has carried or at least that's what it was down the stretch of the season and into the playoffs. I, I don't like this trade for, if I were a Wild fan, I would not like this trade because of what Fiala brings to the organization, a guy who has been to the Stanley Cup final before with Nashville, and he's a, di- a dynamic forward who has very much emerged. But I think to get a first-round pick from the Kings and to get a prospect, it's a decent return, but I don't think this is the time for Minnesota to... I don't. I just don't quite understand this deal. I know it's a smaller market, and you can only afford so much, or so many players of that caliber. But the Wild really look like they're starting to come into their own. But we'll see what they do with that pick and, and what they do with that prospect. For the Kings, this is a a good deal when you have guys like Kempe and you know Ayafalo who are really starting to develop. You have guys like Kopitar who are still kind of on their last legs but are still playing quite well. And, you know, even Quick played decently. I mean, they blew that series with the Oilers. They had a 3-2 lead in the series with Game 6 in L.A. But, you know, the, the fact that they even gave them a run for their money is, shows that they are not as far off in their rebuild as we may think. So to get a guy like Kevin Fiala in their lineup, is is pretty significant. Fiala was a, a rather underrated or understated piece of the Predators' core when they made the run in the Stanley Cup final and maybe should have won the Stanley Cup. In 2017, uh, he scored one of the biggest goals in franchise history, a, a driving to the front on the backhand and scoring to win in overtime and beat the Chicago Blackhawks, put the Predators up three games to none in the first round. And this was... You know, not f- just two years removed from the Blackhawks' last Stanley Cup win, their third in a span of seven seasons. So that was a real dethroning moment. So Kevin Fiala, that's that's a big deal for the Kings. Heading further north, Rick Bonus was named the next head coach of the Winnipeg Jets. Uh, Bonus, of course, had been with the Dallas Stars for the last three years. They parted ways recently. Uh, Bonus, I did not realize was actually coached the original Winnipeg Jets, who of course moved to Phoenix, became the Coyotes. This iteration of the Jets was originally the Atlanta Thrashers. Bonus's first NHL head coaching job was with the Jets in the 88-89 season. He only coached 28 games 
went 8-17-3, but it's still rather significant. His next head coaching job, he led the Boston Bruins to the Eastern Conference Final in 1992, yet somehow that was his only season as their head coach. Spent a combined seven seasons through the 90s and into the early 2000s with the Ottawa Senators, the New York Islanders, and the Phoenix Coyotes as a head coach. However, did not reach the postseason in that time. Finally, after departing the Coyotes after the 03-04 season, did not get another head coaching job in the NHL for 15 years until finally getting that job with the Stars in 2019. And lo and behold, in that first season, in the bubble, or at least the, the, the end of that season was in the bubble, helped lead the Stars to the Stanley Cup Final, their first Stanley Cup Final appearance in 19 years, ultimately falling to the Tampa Bay Lightning four games to two, missed the playoffs in 2021, returned in 2022, and you know to their credit, with a rather depleted roster, kind of rode the back of goaltender Jake Ottinger, who really made a name for himself in this postseason, still actually finished, I believe, with the highest save percentage and low, lowest goals against of any goaltender in this postseason. But ultimately, Rick Bonus's time in Dallas came to a close. But he gets the job with the Winnipeg Jets, a team that you know four years ago got all the way to the Western Conference Final. It was the first time they had made a run that big since returning to Winnipeg, since they were the well, first in terms of the actual franchise. Considering the franchise's history is considered still the Atlanta Thrashers, this Winnipeg Jets team does not retain the franchise history of the original Winnipeg team. This was actually the greatest run in franchise history four years ago under Paul Maurice when they made the run to the Western Conference Final in 2018, falling to the Vegas Golden Knights in five games. And before that, the city of Winnipeg had not seen a Western Conference Final appearance in I believe since at least the I believe since the 80s, but it could have been a little later. But they had not had a team in Winnipeg since 1996 before 2010. So it's you know, and they've gone through kind of almost a rebuild where they've or they at least traded away a huge piece in Patrick Laine. They acquired her to Columbus. They acquired Pierre Luc Dubois. It seems that trade has worked out for them because Dubois is you know, a much better two-way player, and he's held his own on the offensive end. A Winnipeg team that missed the playoffs this year, but had a 40-goal, you know, 85-plus point scorer in Kyle Connor this season. Someone who really emerged. They, have, they still have a good core, but it's still to be determined where they can go. We'll see if Rick Bonus can actually lead them there. Uh, also, one thing to note, he is Canadian. He is a New... Well, to be fair, it's halfway across the country, but a New Brunswick native. Another significant move, actually, like Fialis, indirectly related to the Predators, but this one directly so, Ryan McDonough traded from the Lightning to the Nashville Predators. Really, this was likely a salary dump in exchange for defenseman Philip Myers and forward Grant Mismash. So this frees up nearly... $7 million a year in cap space for the Tampa Bay Lightning. That was the biggest aspect of this trade, was to free up cap space because they have a number of guys going into free agency 
this year and quite a few more next year. Andre Pilat being the biggest one, a guy who was who really meshed with Stamkos and Kucherov on that top line this year in particular, has been a key member of that team that's reached the Stanley Cup the last three years, won it two of the last three years. In addition, Riley Nash is an impending free agent this summer, as is Jan Ruta. They have a few other guys who are going to be free agents. I believe Eric Chernak is one of them next summer. And McDonough is a guy who is now in his, or is going to be entering his 13th season in the league. He played four and a half years in Tampa, but ultimately was probably, you know, he's very, very intelligent and very good stay-at-home defenseman. I don't know if I could say he was as good an offensive defenseman as he was with the Rangers, but very, very good second-pair guy for Tampa did make quite the impact. I remember especially in the 2021 final against Montreal. So uh, a guy who has made a huge difference and will add that veteran presence to Nashville. He's a guy who's won the cup twice. He's been to the final actually four times. If you remember the, the one time he went to the, was there with the Rangers in 2014, he was later their captain before being traded to Tampa Bay. So a guy that can help this predator team that made it back to the postseason this year. And for for Tampa, in return, look, the salary dump is probably going to be the biggest factor here, probably the biggest benefit they got out of this trade. But Myers is a, a rather physical stay-at-home defenseman, not very high scoring. Meanwhile, Mismash has yet to play in the NHL, as a matter of fact. He was drafted back in 2017, but... Tampa Bay will probably have, I, I would have to imagine they'll have a spot opening up at some point. It's going to be difficult to to sign Palat, Nash, and Ruta. They've already re-signed Nick Paul to a pretty reasonable deal. They're giving him $3 million a year over the next, uh, roughly $3 million a year over the next three years. That was a key signing for what he did for them in the postseason, but uh, a good deal all around. Now, there are a few hires this week in the NHL and the AHL that I really wish to mention because they are rather historic hires. So the first one is, after firing their head coach, Bob Bowner, the San Jose Sharks have hired a new general manager, and that is Mike Greer, who becomes the first black GM in NHL history. His, funny enough, his brother Chris is actually the general manager of the Miami Dolphins. It's a significant hire for a sport that has been, you know, for many years, it's a sport that has been stereotyped as being, you know, pretty much almost exclusively for white people, uh, for, for Caucasians. There have been a number of, of African Americans who have made an impact in the game, but you know, hockey is just not really developed itself at times for the black community the way some other sports have. But it's it's a this is a a very significant hiring. Of course, it was last year that the Seattle Kraken hired the first ever African American lead play by play broadcaster. But Greer is. 
highly qualified. He served as the hockey operations advisor for the New York Rangers in this past year regarding off-ice and prospect development, including, and perhaps most notably, with their AHL organization, the Hartford Wolfpack. He was an assistant coach for the New Jersey Devils from 2018 to 2020, and of course helped develop a lot of great young players like Jack Hughes, Pavel Zaka, and the like. He was a scout for the Chicago Blackhawks for four years, from 2014 through 2018. They've, of course, developed a lot of fine young players in that time. Artemi Panarin came up in that time. You have guys like Alex Dabrinkit, Kirby Doc, number of others for the Blackhawks organization. And he also played 14 years in the NHL, including three for the San Jose Sharks. So it's a good hire for them. Doug Wilson left after 19 years with the organization due to medical reasons, did a phenomenal job with this team, a team that is perhaps the best team in the Western Conference not to win the Stanley Cup in this millennium, possible exception being the Vancouver Canucks, maybe the New York Rangers on the East Coast, but the Sharks have been, you know, aside from the last year or two, really one of the model organizations of the NHL. And so they have made a decision that will even further them, not only further the black community, but further the game. And then there were a couple of significant, there were three significant hires and how impactful they were, how impactful they are for women in hockey, women in the NHL in particular. Now, a couple of these are not first times. They're not firsts, but they are rather significant in that they are becoming, these are more, more becoming more common hires. So the fifth, I believe it was the fifth and sixth, I've seen conflicting, I've seen conflicting reports, but I believe they're the fifth and sixth general, assistant general, female assistant general managers in league history who have been hired. So first off, Canadian Olympic gold medalist, a four-time Olympic gold medalist, Haley Wickenheiser was named the assistant GM of the Toronto Maple Leafs. She joined the organization back in 2018. And if you want to see something, if you want to hear something really notable and really noteworthy, really selfless, she had actually retired as a player in 2017 in hopes of becoming an emergency room doctor. She actually achieved her medical degree from the University of Calgary last year in 2021. We, of course, saw this with you know, a couple of athletes. I think the other one, most notably, Laurent Duvernay-Tardif with the Kansas City Chiefs, who decided not to play in 2020 and I believe in perhaps in 2021 as well to help on the front lines of the pandemic. It was a rather selfless action. And so she's you know just a very well-rounded person, or rather just a rather impressive person to be an Olympic gold medalist, to have, a med to have a medical degree, to have played the game, and now to have worked her way up within the organization to become the assistant GM. And also, you know, the Toronto Maple Leafs, a team that has not now has the longest Stanley Cup drought of any team. Obviously, they have a bright future. They have a guy who just won the Hart Trophy for league MVP this year. They do have a lot of great young forwards, but... It's also a point where you need to 
you know, use every avenue in order to try to win. So it's not just, you know, it's not just uh, hiring someone who hasn't played in the NHL as opposed to, uh, I believe it's the NWHL or, or as opposed to, or, or women's Olympic hockey, but this is a move that the Maple Leafs made in order to make their organization better. I, I, so kudos to them. And then another one closer to home for me, the New Jersey Devils have named Kate Madigan their assistant general manager. I believe this might have actually been the same day that they that these two were named. She worked as the executive director of hockey management and operations for two years, as well as the director of pro scouting operations for the organization. Once more, I can tell you the Devils have developed have developed a very good team. They've developed, I think, the best offensive team they have ever had. And that is saying something when you consider that's an organization that's won the Stanley Cup three times and had won it three times in a span of nine seasons. But that was a very defensive team. They've brought in guys like Hughes, like so- like Zaka, like Yegor Sharangovich, uh, uh, Jesper Bratt. They've, do- they've done a number of things to make this a great offensive team. It's probably just defense and goaltending. That's where their biggest, that's their biggest target during this summer, during the off season, to try to make that team better and make it, uh, make it stronger and make it a, a potential Stanley Cup contender if they can find some defense. She has obviously been a big part of that. Kate Madigan, also, again, just to show how well rounded some of these people are. She got her bachelor's degree in business administration and her master's degree in accounting from Northeastern. And so that business administration and accounting, look, I can't tell you what it's like to be a general manager, but those are two things that I'd have to imagine are rather important when you are managing an organization, or at least assisting in managing an organization, managing a budget, and other things like that. She also helped run the logistics for the Devils during last year, and I believe perhaps the previous year's NHL draft. So uh, another significant hire. And then one more, Jessica Campbell. And this is an on-ice, or at least on-the-bench movement. Jessica Campbell was named the first female assistant coach in the history of the American Hockey League. That is the primary... Uh, technically the only minor league, I think, to the NHL, hired by the Seattle Kraken affiliate Coachella Valley. So a a number of major decisions made made by NHL, made in the AHL this past week to try to diversify the hiring process and in turn just, just make the league and make the sport better. There are a couple more things I want to discuss. Uh, for one, of course, July 4th weekend. I know it's, you know, a lot of people, it's not... Compared to other sports, some people may think it's not technically a sport. But then again, you know, if people consider eSports sports, then, yeah, we can count it. The Nathan's Famous Hot Dog Eating Contest... Uh, went once again to Joey Chestnut for the 15th time, finished with 63 hot dogs and buns. 76 was the record that he set a couple of years ago, I believe. But 
uh, kind of fell off the pace. He had a great pace. It looked like he was on pace for 80, maybe even 100 dogs in the first minute. But after the, after in the, lat, in the latter five minutes, I think he really fell off. But then again, that shows how good, how great he actually is uh, at competitive eating that he actually, you know, dominated the field by that, by that much. I don't think, I don't think anyone else had more than 50 or, or maybe even more than 45. He absolutely, he, he still ran away from the rest of the field, but did slow down quite a bit compared to past years. That, that also could be, you know, doing part two. This is the first time. It's, it's funny, actually, this is the, we talk about firsts since the pandemic, began or, or, you know, since quarantine, but this was the first actual uh, Nathan's Famous Hot Dog Eating Contest at the corner of Surf and Stillwell at the proper spot, actually right next to Nathan's, although I, I it was weird. It looked like it was on the other side of Nathan's this year, but it was the first time it was back on the corner of Surf and Stillwell directly next to the original Nathan's in Coney Island since 2019. Because in 2020, they had it, I think, in some, it almost looked like a warehouse or something. I don't know. It was very strange. 2021, they had it outdoors, and it was in Brooklyn. It was in Coney Island, but it was in the ballpark where the Cyclones play. I guess because they didn't want, it was, I guess because it was roped off from the rest of the public. I'm not quite sure. Things were kind of opening up again back then. It was very strange, but this was very significant to have it back at that iconic location, and you know to hear the all to hear George Shea. And if you don't know George Shea, he's the he's the guy with the hat. He is one of the co-founders, I believe, of Major League Major League Eating, and he's run the and his brother Rich and he have run the Nathan's Famous Hot Dog Eating Contests for 25 or 30 years now, and truly turned it into the spectacle that it actually is. So. That was significant, and just to have that in front of a vast number of people. I did not realize about 35,000 people attended uh, on July 4th, and so that's uh, really something big. I I know it's, you know, some people may say, and it is very true in in some ways that it is, in in a negative light, represents, you know, American excess or or human excess, rather, in in eating and all that, but it is, it is still kind of a cool thing, even if, you know, some people might think it's kind of gross, it's, it's still kind of a cool thing that is one of the defining events of American culture, whether you may like it or not, and it was, it's just fun to see it again, and then, you know, on top of that, not just Joey Chestnut winning the men's portion, but Mickey Sudo returning from a 2021 maternity-based absence to win once again. She won in 2020 while significantly pregnant, I believe, and uh, was, I I believe she might have just, I guess, had her son in 2021. Uh, The the boy's, uh, boy Max, his father is uh, Nick Weary, who competed again in the men's tournament this year, but uh, really a a testament to her coming back from that. She had, uh, and you know, it's funny, if you saw the, the ESPN piece on her that aired shortly before the... I, it's funny, I don't even know if they actually showed the women's competition live. I couldn't tell. 
but the the but they showed this shortly before the men's competition is that apparently she didn't uh, she was told for a time that she wasn't even believed that she could have children so it's rather and it's funny you would think you know when you when you eat competitively for a living or at least you know as a hobby it's you you would think that maybe that would impact your your insides to a point that you know it would only make it worse but you also forget how much how much these people train. Like if you ever watch Man vs. Food, uh, how how much Adam Richman actually exercised just to lose all that weight so he could so he could attempt these challenges. So these people really have to compensate for it. But uh, you know, it's funny. Miracles happen, and it was just a really really interesting thing. It was nice to see that the that such a significant event for, you know, for our country in particular had returned to the masses this year. And one last thing I would like to discuss is that uh, some unfortunate news, Chris Taylor of the Los Angeles Dodgers is out indefinitely with a left foot fracture. Now, if any team can afford to lose a guy like Chris Taylor, it's the Dodgers considering how stacked that roster is. But it, I did find this interesting that he fractured his left foot. I'm not sure exactly how he did it, but I realize he's a right-handed hitter, and so it has to be tougher when that's your landing spot. And some guys have—I don't remember—I don't think he has that high a leg kick compared to the average hitter. But when you're when you're a right-handed hitter, that's your landing spot, your left foot, and and that that makes it a lot tougher. Uh, this year, not it was okay. He's hitting two thirty-eight, six home runs, twenty-seven RBIs, uh, six stolen bases. But he has been a kind of a core member, kind of an understated core member of the Dodgers for a team that you know reached the NLCS in 2016. Well, he wasn't on the 2016 team, but helped the Dodgers win the National League pennant in 2017. Maybe, again, they lost to an Astros team that got busted for cheating. They lost in 2018 to a Red Sox team that got did get busted for not not something on that level, but on a lower level of uh, cheating scandal. They won the World Series in 2020. They reached the NLCS again last year, and he's helped them become one of the most successful franchises in recent memory in the last you know decade or so. In his last postseason, last year, he hit 351 with four homers and 12 RBIs in 11 games played Again, helped the Dodgers to a world championship, three National League pennants, maybe perhaps they should have won two or three titles, and four NLCS appearances in the last five seasons. He was also named the co-MVP with Justin Turner in the 2017 NLCS when the Dodgers knocked off the defending champion Cubs. And he also finally made the All-Star game for the first time in his career in 2021. So we hope that he gets better soon because he's a guy who just he is a guy who is rather you know not Mike Trout or you know Otani or Harper but a guy who is a really a good fundamental player and rather an underrated piece of the Dodger organization and he does make the game a bit more exciting and, and show how well it is played but that does it for us this week thank you so much for listening I very much appreciate your time and we'll see you next time here on Sports in the Waiting Room